1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times, I'm Matt Chorley. After weeks of talking about personalities in the election campaign we now have the manifestos and can focus on the policies. I'm joined by a stellar panel this week to help make sense of what's going on. Times columnist Alice Thompson looks at how we'll be paying for our care in old age. Matthew Shaddick from bookmakers Ladbrokes tells us which battles punters are watching closely. But first, Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent from The Times on what's not in the manifestos.
2: There is a striking omission in the manifestos of all of Britain's major political parties. How the government will prepare the UK for the coming age of the robots. The next generation of artificial intelligence, bioscience and smart automation will represent a paradigm shift. This isn't sci-fi, decades away, fantasy realm fodder. It's one of the biggest challenges we face and it's hurtling down the line. It represents a significant threat to employment, will hugely change the nature of work and leisure and risks heightening inequality. It's unforgivable that nobody is talking about it.
1: So this is fascinating. I thought that the, I mean, there's been a lot of talk of robots in this election campaign, but that's just because all of the party leaders seem to be behaving like them. The Maybot. The indeed. Maybot. <laughs> China, yeah, strong and stable. Strong and stable. Um, uh, but you're right. The, the all of the manifestos are very, you know, dealing with what seem to be day-to-day issues they're not very forward thinking everybody's promising a brighter future but they're not that sort of forward thinking
2: I think that's right I, today I was hoping um, for more from the Conservatives it sounded great when Theresa May was saying one of the big five challenges she's identified is how to prepare Britain for the digital age but when I turned to those pages in the manifesto it was it was all stuff we're very familiar with kind of questions over privacy online rights and data it wasn't looking forward to how um, the rise of uh, smart machines are not just going to kind of change the the nature of kind of and possibly destroy a great deal of blue-collar jobs but also white-collar jobs and um, I was just looking up earlier um, Forrester uh, an industry uh, analyst thinks that in the US within just 10 years time 16% of all jobs will be automated resulting 7% net loss of jobs that is a huge kind of threat to employment.
1: Alice what do you think is behind is it just because politicians don't have an answer to it so they just pretend it's not happening?
0: I think they just don't look forward very much to anything at all, do they? I mean, it's it's all current crises and what's happening. And of us and I are doing our series next week, actually, on police, and we were saying that, that they're all talking about crime and how to handle crime on the street. And then not with robots, as in this way, but the, that there is a sense that with the police now, a lot of it is online, it's online crime, and they're just not addressing that. And they're years behind on that. And it's things like... All issues such as porn, that they really haven't got any clue what to do about. They always seem to be fighting the last battle, and I think that is going to be a massive issue for them.
1: It was a sort of terrible optics, which is a phrase that is used at Westminster, but when Theresa May was announcing her plan, her digital plan, to make Britain the most secure place in the world to be online on the day that the uh, the massive hack attack uh, struck the NHS, and there seemed to be a total disconnect between sort of high-minded promises about making it a safe place to be online and then this sort of argument about whether or not the NHS has, you know, updated its virus software which you know we we seem to be told to do all the time. Um, Matt, from your point of view, bookmakers, uh, is there a uh, what's the role of technology and robots and that sort of thing in your industry?
3: Yeah, I mean it's massive. I mean 10 years ago the odds you'd see on Ladbrokes site or in the betting shop were compiled by experts in their field who would think about it and come up with some prices. These days, the vast majority of those sorts of things are done by algorithms, uh, formulas, things like tennis and football, all the odds there you can generate statistically with programs that you've already built. Luckily for me, uh, nobody's yet built a good algorithm to tell us what odds the next late Liberal Democrat leader should be. So, um, I'm in a job for a bit longer but the, the role of expert traders is much much smaller than it used to be yeah. Lucy?
2: I was going to say I think I think it's certainly a threat to um, journalism some of the US kind of major players like I think it's Bloomberg and Reuters are already looking at how um, the job of a re- reporter can be done by a computer and it's absolutely startling the fluency of the text that's produced by these robots, it isn't sort of stilted sort of you know robot speak it, it's got a very clever grasp of the Patter of, of of human dialogue, uh,
1: but then what's happening in politics? I mean, we've seen it in the US as well as in the UK. where Donald Trump's talking about bringing jobs back to America and buying America first. It's an incredibly old-fashioned, nostalgic approach to employment, and you know we even see it during the general election campaign here, where Theresa May's visiting factories and pointing at people making things out of wood or metal. You know, because it
0: does feel like we're going backwards. That you you get that sense, don't you? That actually the workforce and and almost the sort of labour market, I I felt that with the care package when they say that people should be allowed a year off unpaid to look after their old relatives, actually seems quite an old-fashioned idea because it's almost like going back to Jane Austen when, (laughs) if you're a spinster daughter, your role is to look after the next generation, that they're not thinking forward, they're not thinking in a broad way, they're not trying to address problems in a new way, it's more harking back to how much better it was 50 years ago and i think in a way that's to be
2: um, perhaps more expected with labor where obviously the unions and um, paymasters of the party have a huge vested interest in the status quo and and you know sort of perhaps preventing some automation that could in the short term at least destroy jobs but with the conservatives there was a lovely analogy in the telegraph uh, this week philip johnson's column where he said that all this talk of workers rights and tweaking around the edges with with the sort of nature of employment by the conservatives was like 1829 handing a bargeman a shiny new pole when, <laughs> when meanwhile Stevenson was just finishing his tests on the rocket. I, I think no one is really thinking about this huge change that is coming.
1: And you've seen it with um, debates around um, zero hours contracts. The Labour Party at the last election fought very hard on them being a very bad thing and we will stamp them out whereas actually then the debate sort of moved on and lots of people said oh, i quite like them employers like them charities use them a lot and it became a much more complicated picture we've seen this time around there's a big debate about the gig economy and on the one hand you've got sort of young trendy politicians who want to sound like they're you know down with the kids and talking about the gig economy but then the policy response seems to be to try and reshape that to look like traditional employment Alex.
0: Yeah, I think that that's the issue is is they're trying to do what the voters wanted, say, four or five years ago. They're always <laughs> trying to work out the last election. And if you look at the manifestos now, they do all seem much more traditional, partly because everyone's now become such that they've deviated so much. They've become so many it's so much more like say the nineteen eighties or and and even I think now with elections we you know in the last century we were quite used to several elections at once and then we got through a period of stability when it was every four years and every five years and now we're going back to this very rapid succession so people do seem to be going backwards thinking about it rather than going forwards.
1: Do you think part of it is people in there until workers start feeling their jobs disappearing it doesn't sort of go up the list of concerns that voters have? Well they have all think
0: they- it's the immigrants so that it's fascinating that they they never mention it do they Lucy when when we discuss issues with people, that immigration comes up the whole time but I don't think robots really come up very much at all, it's always the idea that these people are coming in to take our jobs, never the idea that robots would be taking our jobs
2: But I think people um, question you know, um, the lack of investment in infrastructure in the UK, You know, if you live in London you're dealing with a creaking um, Victorian underground system, a creaking Victorian sewage system and I think there are huge questions about these tech oligopolies um, and the tax take that the, the exchequer is mm. not getting from them And that's where I think the politicians, you know, should be talking about this more because your Facebooks, your Googles, these transnational companies that don't really seem to be paying terribly much tax anywhere. um, If they're having a lot of people working through the gig economy app based services, then, then people, I don't think, necessarily join the dots. But politicians certainly should be joining the dots that, you know, it's all very well you thinking you perhaps get more in your pocket. But if that tax take isn't being isn't being taken centrally, that's why public services are suffering in partially.
1: Matt, is there an issue with uh, in your industry that far more betting is done online, so shops, you know, there are there are fewer people you've got fewer people calculating the odds, but also are there fewer shops or more shops or is that a, a slightly different issue?
3: Yeah, it's slightly different. The number of betting shops has gone down a bit, but it's still a fairly uh, viable um, part of our business i mean i think about 50 percent of the money we take on let's say the general election will probably still be people with cash in shops um so yeah it's been a big boon and certainly the betting on politics has really benefited from digital remote betting because i guess there's a lot of people who are interested in politics who the idea of walking into a betting shop with cash is probably a bit alien to them whereas you know downloading an app or whatever makes it a a lot easier
1: was a fascinating subject and i'm sure it's one that we'll um come back to in the future even if um our politicians don't uh, now though let's move on to something which is in uh the manifestos which have been unveiled this week uh this is alice thompson and the issue of social care
0: Politicians usually choose to kiss babies on the campaign trail rather than cuddle dementia patients. But social care has now become the election crisis issue. Labour has pledged £3 billion a year for a new national care service. The Lib Dems are penny on income tax. Now the Tories have made it their flagship policy in their manifesto today, promising no one will be forced to reduce their assets to less than £100,000 to pay for care. But this just means tens of thousands more could be paying for their last years and the NHS will have to pick up the pieces.
1: In a way, Alice, this goes back to the point that we were making before. Everyone's been talking about this being a major crisis for at least a decade. <laughs> and now, finally, it's sort, of, it's sort of set to stage in the uh, in the election campaign. You've done an awful lot on this and you've written about this at the Times for a lot. What's your sort of assessment of do any of the uh, solutions which have been put forward come close to addressing the sort of scale of the issue?
0: I think the scale is huge because... So much money was taken out of local government, and local government is where the funding comes from. And it's also a very complicated issue because it's split between the NHS and between local government, and that hasn't worked either. And so the NHS have borne the brunt, really, of all the cuts in local government services. Then we've got an ageing population, and we, they also have a myriad of problems, which they call comorbidity. Which is when you have several illnesses at once, so it, it, they're becoming much more difficult to look after. And Alzheimer's this week actually took over as a bigger killer than cancer. So you've got you've got far more people with mental health illnesses as well, which are very difficult to treat. And so I think all the um, parties have been to, have to look at what they're going to do about social care. And in Manchester has been the most interesting because they're merging social care with the NHS, and the budgets are merging, and they're trying to do something together. Uh, the Tories new policy is the one that surprised everyone the most. So the 1p on income tax, we knew that's what was going to happen with the Dems and with, we knew what Labour were going to do. The Tories have got this new idea um, which is very different and is not what they've had in the last two manifestos. And um, I think it, it could in, possibly in some ways it'll work, but in some ways it'll be very unfair. So it doesn't help out the people who are unlucky enough to get dementia rather than cancer because they will have a huge bill still.
1: And so this idea, previously, the idea put forward by the Dilnot Commission was that the amount that you had to pay would be capped and the Tories are sort of looking at the other end of the telescope and they're putting a minimum limit on the amount of money yes. you can have before you have to start paying. So it.
0: actually what Dilnot was so you could get some sort of um, insurance basis because actually in the end what's going to have to happen I think is you're going to have to have some sort of insurance for people or you have an inheritance tax or something. But what the Tories have done now is said that actually um, down to £100,000, You know, once you hit £100,000, you will no longer have to pay any more. And it won't affect that many people, but it will affect some very unfairly. So you know, some dementia patients are paying vast amounts at the end, um, whereas the cancer care patients aren't going to be
1: paying You, d- you don't pay anything. Lucy, what's your sense of... Do, do you think that the political parties are sort of rising to the challenge on, on this as an issue?
2: I'm not sure they are, but the scale of it, uh, as you said, Alice, is vast. I think between 2012 and 2030, the number of over 80s in the UK is going to double. I mean, there's just a huge anti-demographic time bomb um, and it's very, very difficult. I, I think, you know, a big thing that people talk about is how the culture needs to change in the UK. And I think that is true. It's strange to me that unlike our kind of continental cousins, they're such a sort of Anglo-Saxon aversion to having your parents live with you, the granny flat Um, and I sort of think, well you know, I I sort of factor that in with my kind of long term plans, my fiance that, that perhaps our parents might live with us one day but you know, we're very lucky and get along well with them and I think that it's just very tricky because you can also see the argument of people saying that you know if you had something like the Lib Dem hypothecated tax, well, why should why should everyone have to pay that tax and essentially be paying for other people's parents um, who are, who are wealthy who can then hand down that you know money more money to their own kids? It's a really tricky, convoluted issue.
1: And the politics of this is interesting because on lots of issues in the Tory manifesto they don't appear to be that concerned about upsetting the grey votes, which we would traditionally associate with the Voting Conservative. They'll also talk about taking the universal uh, winter fuel allowance off of wealthy pensioners. The triple pension lock uh, is also being removed. Alice, do, do, do you think they're just making that calculation because they think they're going to stick with, they're not going to switch somewhere else based on those policies?
0: I think there is a sense that the older generation have done better in the last decade and the younger generation are really suffering and I think there's a sense of that among the old generation as well and I think they know that 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 there is a feeling that they need to help pay their way so some of those policies won't worry them too much the ones that will worry them is if you are ending up paying a vast bill I think the fuel tax won't be as much of an issue because I think for quite a long time now it seemed quite extraordinary that you're paying, you know, basically you've got all the other taxes if you've got childcare or, you know, at the other end and university and you're paying for so much when you're young that I think that'll be slightly less of a problem and people won't, the elderly won't mind as much. I think this will worry them and upset them because it's very difficult to understand and I think it'll also be complicated for the NHS because I think they'll end up picking the pieces up.
1: Matt what do you make of it do you do you see a solution to a big crisis facing the country or just a sort of
3: No, I mean, these these really difficult problems to do with things like social care and how you fund it are probably not going to make much difference to how people vote, because it is a very complicated um, issue. These And the minutiae of manifestos, really, most people don't pay any attention to that sort of thing. I, I kind of agree with the point that I think the Tories are taking an opportunity to do some things which normally would be putting off um, elder voters for... Uh, voting for them and they're obviously a very high turnout block uh, but the signs are they are firmly behind uh, the Tories right now, they're not going to vote for Corbyn led Labour Party uh, UKIP aren't that much of an option in large parts of the country anymore, they're just not standing in, in, in half the seats um, so this is almost the perfect opportunity
1: to do some things that you otherwise politically wouldn't be able to do do you Would you ever expect something in a manifesto to suddenly sort of shift the markets from your point of view, that people a sort of game changer in a manifesto or, or people's views no. formed over a longer period? <laughs> yeah. No,
3: it's all about general <laughs> impressions of how you feel about the parties, isn't it? And I guess it's possible somebody could put in something so ill thought out that it could change something. But, the, <laughs> but only for the
1: worse, not it, for the better. Yeah, and yeah. the
3: details of manifestos and even the day-to-day news, what we see happening on the campaign trail, from my point of view, I just try to ignore as much of that as possible because <laughs> I know from experience that these things make very much less difference than people imagine.
1: Alice?
0: Actually, I quite like to ask, has it made more of a difference, do you think, this time with the personalities or not, or do you think we overestimate how important it is with Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May?
1: Um,
3: I think in this case it's, it's, it's probably not the case. I think you know, it, it probably is quite important because mm. Corbyn himself is such a big issue and I can guarantee if these polls get any closer not that they're particularly close right now that I bet the Tories have a huge amount of um, attack lines ready and waiting to go on Corbyn which they won't use unless they have to um, so yeah no I think personalities make a big difference I think there was some evidence at the last election had you looked at leader ratings in the polls you would have had a much better idea of what was going to happen than just looking at the voting intentions which turned out to be inaccurate Did you see?
2: Well, I was just you can say, I think it's very interesting that Labour um, have promised to keep the pensioner triple lock that would see the state pension rising by the highest of earnings growth, inflation, or two point five percent. But uh, as you say, it doesn't make any difference if the if the public's general impression of the leadership is is poor and people don't think they have credibility, um, you know, on the economics. But 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 I do think that if if there were if there were a more credible, more popular Labour leader uh, up against Theresa May, then I think that actually the grey vote is so important that, yeah. that really com- you know rowing in behind the pensioners and the and the pensions triple lot policy could actually be really a really key thing in a parallel universe.
3: Yeah, and if Labour are trying to energise all of these young non-voters, and if we take the point about um, you know distribution of wealth across generations being very unfair towards younger people these days... Then the opposite is probably true. And perhaps they should have been saying things about, you know, let's not be quite so generous with richer pensioners. Um, but whether that will actually motivate younger voters, I, I, I rather doubt so. Well,
1: we'll come back to it and we'll see how it all pans out. It'll be interesting to see now, as the manifesto's bed in over the next few days whether they do um, have any impact. But uh, let's move on. Matthew, as we've got you here, let's talk about betting.
3: The betting markets don't seem to have much doubt about the overall outcome of this race, but then they were equally confident that there was going to be a hung parliament back in 2015. But in any case, there are uh, dozens of other opportunities that the bookies are offering. Um, so we still
1: think this will be a multi-million pound betting election. So this is interesting. You're, you're, you're right. Everyone was very certain about what was going to happen back in 2015, and uh, obviously that didn't happen. How Was that, was that very costly for the... Uh, bookies back in 2015? Uh, it's a very, very painful memory for me, Max. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I was
3: glad nobody was filming me at 10 o'clock on the night of the uh, uh, the polling day in 2015. Um, yeah, we lost about a million pounds, which is a lot of money for us to lose on any market, never mind a political market.
1: Um, So we're crossing our fingers and hoping things go a little bit better for us this time. And how did you fare? Because I remember you came on the podcast before the EU referendum. How did you fare on the EU referendum? Yeah,
3: that that worked out pretty well for us. Uh, Not all bookmakers had the same experience, but um,
1: yeah, we were pretty well insulated against a a, a leave win, so that was fine. So if the the betting markets think they know what's going to happen in the uh, general election this time round, where is all the action happening um, well, the the biggest move we've really seen
3: since since May called the election has been around the Liberal Democrats. So we, like a lot of other people, were completely unprepared for this election. So we didn't really have our prices in order. We hadn't really gone through to think about all of the individual constituencies. Um, and the betting markets' initial guess the Liberal Dems would win about thirty seats. Uh, well, that's sold down to about twelve or thirteen now. And uh, in a lot of people's opinions, it may be it's perfectly possible they may end up losing. Seats from the nine they already have. So that's been a big shift. Uh, the central projection of the markets right now is for about a Tory majority of around 150. 150? Yeah, wow. so about 400 seats. Although it, it, it amazes me just how much money we're still taking on Corbyn and Labour to win the most seats. Uh, I fully expected there to be plenty of people having tenors or 20 quid on that. I wasn't prepared for people turning up in our shops wanting five, ten thousand pounds on Corbyn to be Prime Minister. <laughs> Um, The prices don't look very generous to me, but then there have been a lot of big surprises in political events recently. I mean, Corbyn was 100 to 1 to become Labour leader when he declared he was going to run for that. Trump, Brexit. So I guess there's a lot of people thinking
1: that but it's there's worth a flutter and then there's £10,000. £10, yeah,
3: <laughs> but, I mean, we would have said the same about people backing Trump. Uh, even Brexit was a huge price on the day of 10 to 1, on the day of the referendum.
1: I suppose I'm just jealous of somebody having £10,000 full stop. <laughs> yeah. Never mind being got to go to a book. But, book
3: yeah, I mean,
1: even though it doesn't look that competitive, we still think we're going to take a lot of money on this. And um, does it then break down geographically? Is Scot- You know, Scotland, Wales, different parts of the country... Areas of interest? Uh, Well, I mean, I know a lot of the Scottish seats look really, really interesting.
3: I mean, the ones the Tories are trying to win back off the SNP, or even the ones the Lib Dems are, so we're expecting a lot of action in. I mean, a lot of the Edinburgh seats look incredibly close. Um, So I guess it kind of depends where we think the main battlegrounds have shifted to. So Edinburgh looks pretty interesting, Cardiff. uh, Some of the seats in London that the Lib Dems are trying to win back look kind of interesting. Um, And now we're looking at, you know, seats which would have been considered rock-solid for Labour... Um, Bolsover Ashfield as being you know really interesting betting heats which wouldn't have been you know even two years ago Lucy Fisher
2: I just wondered like if you could just explain more like how you set the odds like is it, do you, do you kind of go into Portcullis House in Parliament and speak to people here on the ground or do you rely more on broadcast media and newspapers to see what's going on?
3: Actually, no, none of that. No, we don't We don't rely on inside tips from anybody, <laughs> although we do look at, you know, do who's... that's
2: illegal to do that? I don't know. Well, I don't think
3: so, but I mean, we certainly look at who's having a bet. So there are quite well-informed people who want to have a bet on certain seats and that's uh, interesting.
2: Including MPs?
3: Uh, well, there are no MPs right now. They're just civilians, right? So if they want to have a bet on themselves to win their seats, that's fine. So there is a little bit of that going on, uh, but mostly it's statistical. Right? It's looking at the polls, comparing it to the results last time out. Um, there are some quite good models out there that been built by political scientists, which will give you probabilities in each seat. Um, so I'm looking at that. I'm looking at numbers rather than um, the media or information, or what's happening in the campaign. I'm just really staring at what's happening in the polls and what we can expect to happen in individual seats as a result of that.
0: What are the most extraordinary bets that you've got going on
3: this election um i mean things that i'm really hoping don't happen are you know the, the one that's in the back of my mind always is somebody had a fairly large bet on um what's the mp for the ex-soldier mp in Barnsley. Dan Jarvis. Dan Jarvis. Dan Jarvis. Somebody's backed him at ten thousand to one to be a Labour leader at
1: some point in the future. Is uh, it
2: Dan Jarvis? <laughs> it wasn't Dan Jarvis. I
1: won't say it was. Presum- presumably, if an MP comes in, if it's a sort of sitting MP comes and puts a bet on their opponent, then you would know that, that there's something. Interesting I would have some ethical issues with that, but luckily, I haven't seen
3: any of that going on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, occasionally you'll, you'll get MPs having fairly large bets on them to win their seats. That's always interesting if people in the lower betting having bets on next party leaders. Um, actually the worst result for us is David Miliband being the next Labour leader which seems so implausible right well obviously it's very implausible right now but even a few months ago the, the amount of people who want to bet on that sort of thing when you know he's not an MP he's not very likely to be an MP anytime soon is, is always quite startling.
1: That, that strikes me as sort of wishful thinking rather than uh, an expectation it would happen.
3: Yeah that's part of the problem with betting you've got to clear your mind of your own personal uh, wishes and desires. Just focus on what you think is going to happen, and actually, a lot of the bets that you'll probably end up find are good ones are the ones where you're betting against your own personal taste, if you, like, if you know what I mean.
0: Well, President Macron is the problem because you know actually you say it couldn't really happen with David Miliband, but then you look across at France and you now think not really. I think more than with Trump because Trump was bizarre but Macron seems quite normal in some ways that you can actually now make it in three years. Yeah
3: yeah. The French, election, electoral system yeah there, the French election it? was great we took a, a, an awful lot of money on that too but most of that was people backing Le Pen I think they were people who made money backing Brexit and Trump thought the same thing was going to happen but as you were saying the electoral system over there was pretty much designed to stop that happening uh, so that worked out okay
1: for us. And what, what influence are the polls having because obviously we've we had 2015 when the polls got it wrong, 20, it, it, if you're being generous about the EU referendum, they were in, in the margin of error, but they just gave us the wrong yeah. uh, result. Hmm. So do you look at polls with scepticism? Do you think, well, punters will look at polls and so that will influence them? So that sort of influences your uh, way of thinking. How, how heavily do you rely on them? and do you, do you trust them? Uh, yeah, I do. You're right. Because
3: 2015 was a huge miss. Um, I mean, we think that the the pollsters have mostly worked out what the main problems there were. So let's hope they they correct themselves uh, again. Um, but now I'm trying to clear my mind of, as I was saying before, of the sort of campaign news and whether Theresa May got berated in the street or whether Diane Abbott gets her sums wrong. I'm trying to ignore all of that and just look <laughs> at the way the polls are moving. And actually, as it happens right now you know, Labour are doing a bit better than people would have expected. There's a fair chance they'll get more votes than last time, right? So if I was looking for value, good bets, I'd be looking at Labour to maybe hold on to some of the seats that people are saying right now uh, are under threat, especially in places where UKIP didn't have much of a vote to to collapse anyway. So Hammersmith and
1: seats in London and Edinburgh and Cardiff and places like that, I guess. Alice, it's been interesting. and We've seen a couple of polls this week showing that Labour are picking up Uh, the share of the vote talk from Len McCluskey that if you know he could go down to 200 uh, seats, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn stay on, other people saying he might even beat Ed Miliband's share of the vote It's going to be interesting how quickly the conversation moves on on June the 9th I presumably you'll be mad busy Matthew with people betting on future Labour leaders and that sort of thing, but actually what's happening with the Labour Party do you think that's uh, people focusing more on the outcome of the election, is it just because they've had some semi-favorable coverage because their manifesto has been published
0: do you remember with ed Miliband, he was doing so badly before the election that when it got to the election everyone started talking him up and we almost managed to convince ourselves that we'd forgotten that he'd you know, done incredibly badly and i think you get slightly the same sense of that with jeremy corbyn that it's become so boring talking about how dreadful he is that everyone starts thinking well maybe that's not that bad and then you look at the manifesto and there are some interesting points in it actually, and it's definitely different from the Tories, and there are some points on wishful thinking that you would quite like to emulate if you were the Tories, probably. And actually, looking at the Tory manifesto, some of it is quite similar to Ed Miliband's manifesto.
1: <laughs> I know, it's the weird, the weird world of politics yeah. now. You know, what was a death tax and a Marxist attack on energy companies? is now good old-fashioned conservatism, uh, at least according to Theresa Um L- Lucy, one of the interesting things, now that we've got the policies and the manifestos, is how... All the parties can then be questioned about them because Mm -hmm. up until now we've had a sort of phony wall in the election campaign where people have been asked what would you do on X or Y and it's been wait for the manifesto, strong and stable, wait for the manifesto. But now we know. Do you think that that could eat into some of the Conservative lead? Because up until now people have been been basically able to project what they wanted onto Theresa May's conservatism.
2: I think that's absolutely right. And today after the... um the publication of the conservative manifesto people will be crawling over it picking it apart far more than i think the labor manifesto or the lib dem manifesto because the polling suggests that the current conservatives will be the next government um, and i think there are already questions you know emerging from the theresa May's right wing you know about some of these moves to put workers on boards you know energy price cap would be, you know, the biggest state intervention in the in the market, you know, for 40 years. People are sort of asking if that's kind of authentically Tory. Uh, so I think there's going to be a sort of a pincer movement from both kind of, both ends, from the left and the right, kind of really kind of going for her now. But I think, as Matthew said, my sense is that people vote more on an image, people are impressed by her, her, her the governess sort of, her authority her sense of competence um, and I think that's so well entrenched now that the, the it's not going to shift things so much that apart from in the kind of the pointy heads political sort of um, commentators and very engaged people like us readers, in this room that's what you mean yeah, yeah. and very kind of <laughs> well-informed voters
1: well, I think that's all we've got time for uh, this week. If you've got any views on any of the subjects we've been discussing, get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter at TimesRedbox, find us on Facebook or email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. You can also sign up to my morning email briefing. That's at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and subscribe to the podcast. On iTunes, on your Android device. So, uh, as we do these extra podcasts during the election campaign, they will just appear on your device when they're there. But for now, uh, from Alice Thompson, Lucy Fisher, Matthew Shaddock, and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.